cyber slacking. That's the name. It's a real name. Those of you in, in business know this. Cyber slacking is what your employer calls it when he catches you on the computer uh, doing what Gino talked about. <laughs> but if you're going to be caught cyber, cyber slacking, what better defense than to say you were on the church's website gaining insight for living, <laughs> learning how to be a better employee? Uh, those kind. Now, so we're not encouraging cyber slacking. You know, all the computing is on your own time. And, uh, but uh, if you're going to do it, do it. And, you know, the, we really do start our podcasts and videocasts in stores. It's, it's a real hobby of ours. And so uh, learn how to do that and do it. Uh, there'll be stores all over the valley that'll be showing our podcasts and messages. And so I think it's, it's kind of fun. Because, I mean, they always have some goofy stuff on there, some YouTube video that people shouldn't watch anyway. So just, you know, go to our... It's real easy. Go to our website. It's only a few clicks. Get to our website. Get on the video archive and just press that. And you'll have last Sunday's sermon. And who knows what God could do with that. Probably nothing, but it, it, at least it's fun. All right. This morning, we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. Those of you who've been here for a while, you know that we're studying through the entire book of Acts. We find ourselves... In chapter 19, our text this morning is chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. The topic, the silversmiths who craft shrines to the goddess Diana stir up the crowd against Christians when their business drops off because the gospel is turning people to God from idols. The title of our message, Every Crowd Has a Silver Whining. Of course. <laughs> Acts 19, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands." So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. 
But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet. Do nothing rashly, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Father, we're asking this morning that by your Holy Spirit teaching us in this place that you would update this text, show us how we fit in it, how it ministers to us, how it encourages us and strengthens us and builds us up in our faith so that we can go out, Lord, and affect a world the way these first century Christians did. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Christians are starting to use a new catchphrase. Perhaps you've heard it. They're saying, I want to make a difference. It seems to capture a heartfelt desire to change the world. The question is, how do I make a difference, a real difference, and change the world? Our text today describes the difference biblical Christianity made in a city, in a region, affecting all of Asia Minor. An entire pagan business venture was put in jeopardy. I'd say it qualifies as making a difference. How did the Christians accomplish such an amazing feat? They simply behaved like Christians. When we simply behave like Christians, we make a real difference in our world. We will behave like Christians if we do the two things that the believers in Ephesus did. Find the Lord's business and then mind the Lord's business. I'll organize my thoughts around those two points. Number one, find the Lord's business for your life. And number two, mind the Lord's business with your life. Let's take a look first of all in verses 21 and 22, find the Lord's business for your life. When Jesus was 12, he made an insightful comment. He said to Joseph and Mary, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Later in a parable, Jesus would tell his disciples, do business till I come. He was talking about the spiritual business of daily living out the Christian life. If we are to do spiritual business until Jesus returns for us, then we need to find the Lord's business for our lives. We get some insight into how to do just that as the Apostle Paul makes his future plans in the opening verses. And so let's look at verse 21 again of Acts 19. When these things were accomplished... Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. The things which were accomplished certainly look back on the earlier events in Ephesus. We saw there the conversion of the 12 disciples of John the Baptist and their reception of the Holy Spirit. We saw the two and a half years of daily teaching God's word in the lecture hall. We saw miraculous healings and exorcisms. And finally, we saw the burning of occult literature by Christians who had been dabbling with those things. 
The word accomplished also reminds us Paul knew God's overall business for his life. His work in Ephesus was accomplished. It was time for him to move on, to move forward. He was to be about the business of church planting. It's what his life was all about. He never stayed in one place too long, and so he makes plans to go through Macedonia and Achaia to Jerusalem and on to Rome. And by the way, from this point forward, just in the narrative, the book is looking towards Rome. Uh, We'll see that Paul has a very unorthodox way of getting to Rome. Uh, It wasn't his choice. It was God's choice. He ends up arrested and taken to Rome as a prisoner, uh, but all the costs are paid. He doesn't have to go, no out-of-pocket costs when you're a prisoner of Rome and they take you to Rome. Now, you're probably not called to be a church planter or a missionary or a full-time minister. I'm not, uh, maybe you are, but most people are not, and that's fine. You're probably already right where God wants you. You therefore need to find and do the Lord's business right where you are. Paul purposed in the Spirit. It means he sought for God's purpose and plan for his next move. Undoubtedly, he prayed, he read the word, he asked for prayer. He did all the normal things you do to discover the will of God. Your next move may not involve going anywhere, but even if you're not going anywhere, God has a next move for you. You are the Jesus that people around you see. You are the Paul who has been sent to reach them. God can and wants to show you new, fresh ways to engage them for the sake of the gospel. Once Paul knew his immediate purpose, then he set a plan in motion. It says that he sent Timothy and Erastus ahead to plan for him. And then in verse 22, he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And so Paul, he knew his work had been accomplished. Uh, he, he wanted to find God's plan in his life at that time, now that that work was over. He discovered it using normal spiritual means and resources available to all of us, and then he set that in motion. I suggest that when we realize we've been placed right where we are by God's design, we will be more apt to find God's purpose, and set a plan in motion to reach the folks around us. I mean, every Christian wants to share the gospel. Most of us find it one of the most difficult things to do. But we want to talk to people about Jesus Christ. We want to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. I've noticed sometimes because life has a tendency to just kind of crash in on you, we forget that the home we're in, the, the job we have, the school we attend, you know, where we go to have recreation, those are things that, and places where God has sent us. We might be the only Christian there. We might be one of many Christians there. But, but God has put us in that place. And when we start thinking again, hey, I'm in this place to reach the people around me for Jesus Christ, I think it opens up our understanding and God is able to, uh, to share new and exciting ways with how to do that. Uh, we get distracted sometimes from just living out the Christian life because we're so full of living life. And it's not a criticism, it's not a rebuke, I mean, just it happens. It happens. And so this is a reminder. Paul is reminding us, hey, Wow, tomorrow or tonight or later this week, when I go to work, 
I'm Paul the apostle to those people. I'm not planting a church, but I am planted there as the church. A lot of those people don't go to church. You know, some of them, really, really, and I mean this heartfelt way, uh, one of the, some of the greatest times in my life were when I first got saved and before I went into full-time ministry and I found myself surrounded by pagan unbelievers, people that I've been working with for years and in my neighborhood and stuff. And, and uh, yeah, that can be hard, that can be rough, but I've noticed in my own life and in the lives of others a tendency, it's like at first, it's like, wow, I got saved. You know, if you get saved later in life, wow, I'm saved and, and I wanna share with everybody and there's an excitement and God's working. But then over time, if we're not careful, we're around Christians more than we're around non-Christians and pretty soon we look at the non-believers almost as if they are our adversaries. They are our enemies. We pray against them. We want to get out of the job. We want them transferred somewhere else. They're making our lives miserable. What do you expect from a non-believer? A person whose life is miserable. A person who's going to die and go to a Christless eternity. And so sometimes we just need this wake up like, wow, wow, I am there to affect those people. And maybe the more that they hate me, the more effect I'm having on them. They must be seeing something of Jesus Christ because, after all, they hated him. Thank you, Lord, that I'm hated at work. Change your prayer life. It's it's a wonderful thing to be around non-believers if we have that attitude that, hey, I am here to make a difference, to make a real difference in their life. And it shouldn't be a burden. It's a blessing. And as we continue with that attitude or recapture that attitude, then I believe God will release his power and resource into our lives. And so you have spiritual business at home and at school, in the workplace, even if you're retired, maybe more so if you're retired. If you're, you are there to make a spiritual difference in the lives of others around you. And so seek and then set a plan in motion to reach them. Find the Lord's business for your life. Now in verses 23 through 41, mind the Lord's business with your life. Wouldn't it be great if we could put certain businesses out of business. Adult bookstores and fortune tellers come to mind, as do cocktail lounges and bars. Gambling establishments should be on that list. Drug trafficking is a business that we would like to see shut down. There are whole cities we would like to see shut down, and and whole regions of the world, as it were. The Christians in Ephesus were putting a dent in the silversmith trade. How did they do it? by simply behaving as Christians. All the other things we might want to do to fight against society are really secondary to living out the Christian life in its power. Ephesus was home to a magnificent temple to the fertility goddess Diana. It was believed that a stone fell from the sky. It may have been a meteor. The people speculated it was from Zeus since it fell from the sky and roughly carved it to resemble a many-breasted woman. There was a lucrative and thriving business of selling silver shrines to the devotees of Diana and the millions of tourists who would visit what was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so that's the background into which we uh, are set with this story. And so we see that without firing a single shot, the Christians were affecting the idol trade. Verse 23, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. That's what Christians were called because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, he was a silversmith, he made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many people, saying they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, what you find out, first of all, in these verses is that Demetrius's God was not Diana, it was money. Diana was a means to that end. Trafficking in silver shrines was preying upon people's superstitions and their uh, religious superstitions. Uh, and literally millions of people came to Ephesus and visited this, and, and they had these trinkets and souvenirs that they bought. Even if they weren't devotees of the goddess, they would buy these things. Kind of, you know, we do that. I mean, we buy souvenirs. How many, you know, souvenir shot glasses do you really need, you know, uh, in the places or thimbles or whatever they are? And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. It, well, if it's a god, there's something wrong with it. But, uh, you know, and you have collections. We all have collections of things. And, and so uh, this was a big, big business. I'm sure there were booths and shops all over Ephesus selling these shrines uh, of different sizes and, and whatnot. Now, how sad, just in passing, to just remark that greed motivates people to become involved in all sorts of businesses that really prey upon and abuse other people. Some of the most lucrative businesses in the world today exist because they abuse and prey on people. And uh, what a sad thing that that is. What, what, I mean, we need to be saved. I mean, you, you really, any rational person who looks at the condition of the world today and, and things like this, says, hey, there's something wrong with human beings. There's something wrong with human nature. There's something within that's not tracking correctly. And, and we, of course, have the answer to that. We understand human nature uh, from eternity past to eternity future, and we can speak to that as Christians. What was Paul doing to affect the business of the silversmiths? Well, back in verse 9 and 10, we learned he was teaching the Bible every day. As he taught thoroughly and systematically, he undoubtedly came across passages in Isaiah and elsewhere that put idols in proper perspective. The biblical principle was, they are not gods which are made with hands. What a revelation that is. I mean, think about it. It's so silly. There's a passage in Isaiah uh, we don't have time to read it right now, but it's, it's so cute about how men fashion these gods that can't hear, speak, talk, or walk, and then they carry them around. Here's my God. Let's worship my God. What's well, not doing anything? It's my God. Will he talk to me? No. Can he hear me? No. Does he move? No. I have to carry him. But I have a really nice case for him. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. And so all Paul was doing, he was doing what we do on Sunday morning, just going through the Scripture. Only he was going through the Old Testament. And he'd get to these passages and he'd say, hey, they are not gods which are made with hands. And in, in Ephesus, that's really all that he had to say. A, 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 a rational person and certainly a Christian would then go out into the public square and you wouldn't have to say, and by the way, don't buy a shrine to the goddess Diana. 
Christians, you know, shouldn't do that because you knew that. You were a Christian. You loved the Lord. You knew that gods couldn't be made with hands, but your God made all things. And so you had no business purchasing silver shrines. Their sale dropped off dramatically as more and more people were getting saved. Demetrius finally couldn't take it anymore, and he started a campaign against Paul and the Christians. Verse 28, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. Idolatry and the idol trade was a significant evil in that culture. There was nothing innocent about it. But it wasn't Christians taking action against the silversmiths. The silversmiths were taking action against the Christians. The everyday witness of the believers had transformed people from within, thus changing the world around them one heart at a time. Verse 30, and when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. The amphitheater where they were assembled, we know, held upwards of 25,000 people. And so let's assume that it was a full house. Paul saw it as a spontaneous crusade. He didn't, it's great. It didn't cost anything, no advertising, no radio time. Uh, you didn't have to invite your friends. And everybody there was an unbeliever, unlike most crusades where almost everybody is a believer and they're dragging their non-believing friends. Uh, and what a blessing it is. I mean, crusade evangelism is fantastic, but this is a totally non-believing crusade, uh, you know, with 25,000 people who are clearly not believers. Paul wanted to preach the gospel. How do I know that? Because everywhere he faces an angry mob or an angry crowd or an irate judge or ruler, instead of defending himself, instead of whining, calling for the wambulance or something like that, he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think Paul had a death wish, but if he was going to die, he was going to die preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If 25,000 people wanted to kill him, he was going to make sure that they knew that he did it for Jesus and that he was going to go to heaven immediately after they killed him. And so Paul was a brave, courageous minister of the gospel. He knew God's plan for his life, and he minded that. Now, the Christian disciples would not allow him to go. They feared for his life, and rightly so. God used them to spare Paul from some suffering. Sometimes there's not always a right or a wrong. I mean, you can't look at this and say, well, Paul should have or shouldn't have. I mean, he wanted to go. Of course he wanted to go. His heart was towards preaching the gospel, and this was an opportunity to do that. I'm giving kudos to the disciples for saying, hey, Paul, now's not the time. You see this as a crusade. We see this as a lynching. Uh, it, you know, and and uh, didn't, didn't you say you had plans to go to Rome? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's just back off and see what the Lord wants to do here. Verse 31, then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. So while the disciples were restraining him, somehow he gets a message from some of the chief officials of Asia. Now, this is an interesting biographical note. There are no indications that these officials were Christians, but they were nevertheless Paul's friends. 
There is a friendship evangelism that takes place as we are out and being about the Lord's business. It's okay to have non-believing friends as long as we keep trying to introduce them to our best friend. And so I just think you get a little window into Paul here. Paul was all about uh, evangelism. He was all about strengthening the church and hanging around with Christians. But he also had friends. These guys happen to be friends in high places. Men who hadn't yet come to Christ, but whom Paul maintained a relationship with so that he could share Christ with them. And so in verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. Most of them did not know why they had come together. People are easily swept along by peer pressure, especially in a mob. Most of these people could not explain their hostility towards the Christians. I think it can be the same in the encounters we have with people. A lot of people we know who are not believers have been swept along by various pressures to reject Jesus Christ without ever really understanding the gospel. Most people who are not Christians, and even some who are, have a completely false idea of what it means to follow Jesus. They have some erroneous idea of what that means. They, they watched a movie or they saw something on television. They picked up what the media says about the Lord. Sadly, some of them have gone to a church uh, where they've gotten the wrong impression of Jesus and who He is and what He wants. It's easy for churches to give the impression to people that Jesus always wants something from them, that He wants them to give something up that they enjoy, that He wants them to give Him His money, that He's about to fail, He's on life support and needs their money. Uh, and, and generally, people have a bad impression of biblical Christianity. A lot of that has to do with the media and satanic influences. I understand that. Some of it does have to do with Christians and with the way we portray Jesus Christ. I mean, when you get right down to it, if you sweep away all the religion and organized stuff and all that, how could you not love Jesus Christ if you really saw him for just who he is and knew what he had done for you? If, if you, even just for the sake of argument, if a person will buy into the idea that, okay, let's say that men are born sinful, that they inherit a sin nature, that they're sinners from birth, and that they can never go to heaven because one sin is enough to keep you from heaven and the only other alternative is hell. Let's, just for the sake of argument, let's say that that's true. Then how could you not respond positively to Jesus Christ who left heaven, became a man, took your punishment, died on the cross, rose from the dead. He's in heaven now building you a house. When you get there, you'll be debt-free. It'll be fully furnished, and you'll be in a brand new body that's a lot better than the body you have right now. How could you not love that? So I understand still there's a satanic conflict going on, but somehow that message is not getting across to people. Instead, some other message is getting across to people. You, you, you need to not do that, and you need to do this, and we need to protest here and fight this and all of this kind of, And people have a bad impression of Christianity. Just make sure it's not coming from us because our impression of Christ is good. We love him. He's our lover. He's our friend. He saved us. And we need to translate that in and through all that we do publicly, privately, one-on-one, -on -one, in assemblies, so that people know 
how wonderful our wonderful Savior is. And so it says in verse 33, another little side note to the crowd, they drew Alexander out of the multitude. The Jews put him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make a defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. You'd think they could come up with something better than that if you're going to If you're going to chant for two hours, I mean, have a catchy phrase at least, you know. But now what's going on here? Well, we speculate a little bit from the way the text is worded. Uh, It seems as though the Jews were starting to worry that the crowd might lump them in with the Christians. After all, Christianity was seen by many as an offshoot of uh, Judaism. In fact, officially... Rome thought of Christianity as an offshoot of Judaism, which was why Christianity at this point was not illegal. And so the Jews always worried about anti-Semitism, which was alive and well in the first century and in the city of Ephesus. They put Alexander forward probably to say, hey, we're, we're cool with Diana. We're cool with your little shrines. Uh, You know, it's not us that you have a problem with. And see, what an interesting reveal that is. It reveals the powerlessness of religion in general and Judaism in particular. The Jews were able for a long time to peacefully coexist with the pagan worshipers of Diana. They got along just fine. There was never a riot or an uproar in Ephesus because of the Jews, only when the Christians came. Now, the Jews had the same commission that we have. They were to bring the knowledge of the one true God to all the nations of the world. But apparently, they were not doing that. In fact, they didn't want to do that. The Jews were happy to be separate from the Gentiles. They despised and hated the Gentiles. And so, hey, worship Diana all you want. What a sad thing that is. This is the modern, one modern equivalent of this is people who go around and say, you know, all roads lead to God. As long as you're worshiping something, you're okay. No, you're not. You know what? I've said this before, and you know it's true. All roads do lead to God, but they lead to God in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment where you learn that the road you were on was satanic, it was occultic, it was uh, some odd religion or philosophy that didn't give you salvation because you didn't believe in Jesus Christ. And so we don't, I mean, we're not out to cause strife, uh, you know, but uh, people always attack Christianity. How come you guys think you're the only way? We are the only way. (laughs) I'm sorry, sorry, you know, it's just the way it is. I love what Josh McDowell said. It might have been said before him, but he, he's the one I heard it from first. He said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. There are no other alternatives. You, you can't say Jesus was a great teacher. You can't say he had a lot of great things to say. Then he was a liar and a lunatic because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. No one on earth, in any culture, in any subculture, from any ethnic group, from any nation, people, tribe, or tongue, no one comes to the Father except the Bible way through me. 
And so we can't go around coexisting peacefully with other religions on that level, on the level of you believe that, we believe this, we're all happy. No, we're not. We're unhappy for them because they're going to die and go to hell. Why do we tell people about Jesus Christ? Because the, the alternative is horrifying. It's terrible. So the Jews were trying to protect themselves, didn't work. Anti-Semitism was alive and well in Ephesus, and so they, they shouted down Alexander. Things were getting seriously out of hand by this point. Two hours of just chanting, we'll do that to you. And so in verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. We are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The city clerk is more like a modern-day mayor in a strong mayor city. The gist of his message was that this was an unlawful assembly under Roman law, which could bring upon them the wrath of the Roman government. Rome was a law and order society. They went to great lengths to enforce the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, uh, and by great lengths, what I mean is they would send the Roman legion to crush you. Uh, and so you never wanted word to get back to Rome or the Roman authorities that there was a disturbance in your city. If the silversmiths had a gripe, they should pursue it legally by bringing a lawsuit against someone. Just call the ACLU. They're always on hand to sue Christians. Uh, so, you know, here, take some cards now. What is most intriguing to me, however, is the city clerk's commentary on the Christians. It's very telling. He said in verse 37, they are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. The Christians had not mounted a campaign of any kind against the worship of Diana. They had organized no protests, no boycotts. They had initiated no legislation, and they certainly had done nothing that was against Roman law. What did they do? They minded the Lord's business with their own lives. Earlier in the chapter, just prior to these events being told, we saw that believers were themselves still purchasing and consulting occult literature. God used a failed exorcism to break them of their fascination with the occult. The Christians confessed their own sins and publicly burned millions of dollars worth of dark materials. Then you read in verse 20, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, and then we have this incident told us. As a result of the Christians minding the Lord's business in their own lives and the word of God then being taught with new power, then the silversmith trade was jeopardized. 
When the believers minded the Lord's business with their own lives, when they came clean of their carnal diversions, then a new power was released in and through them. The byproduct of minding the Lord's business with their lives was evangelism. People got saved. They quit purchasing shrines. You can look at it this way as a comparison. Once a person understood his or her body was the temple of the Holy Spirit, they had no need for a man-made shrine that enclosed a representation of Diana. And that's exactly what happens when we become Christians, is it not? The Holy Spirit indwells us. There are scriptures that talk about us individually and corporately as the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within us. Once a person knows that his or her body is the temple of God, and further that your body belongs to Jesus Christ, you'll have no need of the many industries that prey upon and abuse you because you'll want to use your body to glorify God and to set other people free from those things. You will discover power within to turn to God from idols. Protests and boycotts and legal action and legislative acts all have their place in a free society. We live in a great nation. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else, and we should utilize our freedoms when it is called for and when it is necessary. But before we ever engage in any of those types of activities, we should be sure we are minding the Lord's business with our own lives. Those kinds of things are no substitute for real Christianity. We should be like the Ephesian Christians who rid themselves of the hindrances to having a powerful witness. It's hard to be against something when we are involved with it ourselves. It's hard to be against uh, some of these industries if we are partaking of them secretly as the Christians were in Ephesus. That's why they weren't having an effect initially because Outwardly, they might be giving it lip service, but inwardly, they were partaking of it. And we should be like the Apostle Paul in that we are willing to put our lives on the line for the sake of the gospel. Maybe not in the sense we will be actually martyred. One of the things I love about living in the United States is that uh, chances are, chances are I'm liable to get through my life without being martyred. That's not true in most of the rest of the world. There are still many martyrs, many men and women laying down their life for the Lord, and, and uh, we're grateful for the Lord's grace in their lives. And so it's not that I, I put myself necessarily in that kind of danger, but certainly in the sense that it could cost me something. It could cost us something to live out the Christian life, to put biblical principles into practice for the love of God. The greatest effect we can have on society and on the world comes from finding and then minding the Lord's business for our own lives. When people see a believer living a truly transformed life in the power of the Holy Spirit, that is when we will truly make a difference. Let's pray. Father, we do want to make a difference as I uh, look out and survey the faces and lives of my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. All of us want to share you. All of us want to overflow with your love. We want to see our non-believing relatives and friends come to Christ. We want to do all of the things that we are reading about and hearing about uh, in this text. And I pray, Lord, that 
we would just simply yield ourselves over to you and allow you to do them through us. Show us, Lord, uh, your love and grace. Revive us. Bring us back to that place of first love. It is to this church, Lord, the Ephesian church, so much in love with you that they were affecting the silver trade, that the message of the gospel was going through all of Asia. It is to that very church that just maybe 30 or 40 years later, you would write and tell them that they must return to their first love because they had left off loving you. Lord, I pray that we would be sincere enough, romantic enough, honest enough in our relationship with you that as individuals and as a church, we would be able to receive a word like that from you. If you want to come to us personally or corporately at any time, today or in the future, and say to us, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, you have left your first love. I pray that we would receive that, that we would be broken in spirit because we do not want to leave our first love. We want to kindle and rekindle and re-rekindle our first love moment by moment and day by day. Yours is a great love, an everlasting love. You've drawn us to faith in Christ, filled us with your spirit, set us free from so many things, Lord. I, I don't honestly believe I would be alive today if it weren't for your love. I know I wouldn't have my wife. I know that I wouldn't have the children I have or the grandchild that I have. Lord, you did all of those things in my life. You've done them in the lives of my brothers and sisters. We love you for it. Bring us back to that place every minute of every day. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Uh, we are going to be closed. The office will be closed on New Year's Day, but other than that, we're back to a regular schedule on Wednesdays and all. Uh, Wednesday morning, the men. Wednesday evening, Ignite. Uh, cafe is open this morning. Always like to exhort you to meet somebody you've never seen before, just for friendship's sake, for love's sake. Tell them that you love them in the Lord, because you do. And I uh, pray that, you know, if you have the liberty, I love, I like getting email. I love getting email. And, and uh, if you guys want to send me prophecy updates or things that you think I might uh, find useful, that's fine. Um, it, but especially this week and the coming weeks, if, if the Lord shares with you any new and exciting ways that you can be used at work or at school, or maybe you just start praying again for a person that you haven't prayed for for a while. Uh, and, and then God starts to open up a door. I'd love to hear about that. It's nice to have that interaction. May God bless you. May he keep you. And may it be our constant resolution, not a New Year's resolution, but an everyday resolution that we would remain in our first love with Jesus Christ, the love of the engagement, the, the great love where our hearts are captivated and motivated by nothing other than that. And may others see in and through us who Jesus really, really is, the Lord of glory, who laid down his life that they might live forever. God bless you. Amen.